Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, publisher of The Devil's Punchline, the only hangman's joke fanzine. <laughs> oh, nice. I'm glad that you uh, you came up with a title for your fictional fanzine about this fictional band. You got to go all in if you're going to go for it, Josh. You do. You do indeed. So in this uh, special retrospective season, our 10th season of Awesome Movie Year, we are taking a look back at all of the years that we have covered in previous seasons and picking out one new movie to cover from each one. And in this episode, we are going all the way back to the first year that we ever covered, which was 1994. And back in, well, not in 1994, but back <laughs> in 2019 or 18 or whatever, time is a construct, man. Uh, when we started this fucking podcast, uh, we did not have an episode in that season with a pick from our wonderful producer, David Rosen. So we decided for 1994 in this season, we would go with Dave's pick. So Dave, Wait, before we get to Dave's pick, yes. Josh, we should really open it up. Why didn't we let Dave have a pick in 1994? <laughs> I mean, I think it wasn't that we didn't let him have a pick. We just didn't think of it as something to do. And then after that season, Dave said, hey, I'd like to have a pick. And we let him out yeah. of his cage and told him. It was weird. Pick a movie. You kept fighting against it. No, I know he's going to pick the 10 and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, we got to give him a chance, though. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was no no malicious intent on our part. Uh, to be fair, I wasn't even watching all the movies. <laughs> that's that true. Point, so I was, I, you know. I was just going to say that Dave was much less of a participant there yeah. in the early days. So uh, but now. He is really a beloved part of our podcast, and and really the podcast would fail entirely without Dave's contribution. I mean, and with him, it fails partially. So, <laughs> yeah. So just see how things are going. But uh, Dave, tell us about your pick for 1994. Oh boy, my pick for 1994 is the goth classic, The Crow. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting because, as Jason was alluding to with the 10, many, if not all of Dave's picks, have been kind of goofy comedies. That seems like Dave's go-to thing, but that mm -hmm. is not what we've got here at all. So what, what did The Crow mean to you, Dave? So I hadn't seen it in at least 20 years uh, up until this week, and I didn't really remember that much about the, the actual movie itself that much to me it was mostly the soundtrack the rock alternative rock industrial goth soundtrack which was a major major uh, inspiration to me as i started getting into making music myself as some listeners of the show may know definitely you guys know i i compose music for films i put out albums of instrumental music and I was very, very inspired by this soundtrack by The Cure, of course, is like my biggest influence, uh, Nine Inch Nails, my life with the Thrill Kill Cult, who actually appear in the film. A lot of this kind of music on the soundtrack was just so instrumental in, in like making my tastes in music kind of come alive. And this film obviously came out in 94. I was 13 going on 14. It was the perfect time to get into this kind of music. And although I never went full goth, I never uh, wore the all black and did any of the makeup or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, this kind of music was what carried me through high school. I have two quick follow-ups, Dave. One, did the music, I mean, it must have enhanced your enjoyment of this film when you first saw it, correct? I would say so, yeah. It was the music, but I would say I, I fully enjoyed this film on the level when it first came out back then as a 13, 14 year old dude. And my second question is, had you wanted to go full goth, would your parents have let you? <laughs> Probably. Uh, I did for one of our uh, Polar Bear MCs concerts. And uh, there's some really ridiculous pictures with my mom with her arm around me and me in full makeup and everything. And uh but yeah, she would have loved it if I had. Did you dress as the crow or just in kind it, of a generic? It was goth just a yeah, an all-in goth kind of persona. It was pretty crow-like though. 
All right. Awesome. I'll send you guys the picture. Yeah. I, I think we should, we should post those uh, <laughs> on our social media, perhaps. Um, so Dave was not alone, of course, in uh, being heavily influenced by this film, both musically and aesthetically. It was certainly a big, big movie for kind of the uh, mall goth subculture, maybe we can call it. Sure. Um, but of course, uh, the biggest thing about this movie, the biggest story about the movie, and the thing even now that I feel like most people remember about this movie is the tragedy of Brandon Lee, the star of this film, who plays Eric Draven, aka The Crow, uh, who was killed in an onset accident with three days left to shoot. So the movie at that time was uh, briefly shut down. There were discussions of whether they should continue at all. Uh, ultimately, although it was dropped by its initial distributor, Paramount, in part because of that incident, was picked up by Miramax, which added an additional $8 million to its budget. There were some rewrites and reshoots, and they went ahead with the film without uh, Brandon Lee's last scenes that he was meant to shoot via rewriting, some digital replacements, uh, stuntman Chad Stahelski, actually, who has, of course, gone on to be a big filmmaker, was the stuntman who replaced Brandon Lee there. And so when this movie came out, it was really known for that. It was known as the movie where Brandon Lee was killed. Still, It still is. It's impossible to watch it and not have that. I mean, it's his movie, right? You know, he carries every bit of it. He's in, I think, if not every frame, just about every frame. Right. And so it's, it's just, you can't, um, I was, you know, reading quotes from like Alex Proyas, the director, and he said, you know, this is his legacy. This is his movie. So it's, uh, it makes it harder to watch, you know, obviously, but I think probably back then, like people were getting swept up in it. Um, at the same time, this is, you know, still happening as we know from the set of rust, right. Where the, director of photography was killed. And a few years ago, there was like the, was she a PA or a camera person who was killed on that movie in uh, Atlanta when a train hit her. So just, uh, just stuff that should not be happening at this point and shouldn't have happened then. If you read about how this happened, just, just really, really bad protocols and, um, or not even following protocols and uh, chain of command, just stuff that could have been prevented all the way through. Right. And sadly, uh, if you read about what happened on the set of The Crow, it's remarkably similar to what happened on the set of Rust and sad that uh, all those years later, the same protocols were not being followed properly or not being implemented properly. But I think it's weird. I, I don't remember as much what the kind of discourse was around this film at the time with relation to onset safety, but it feels very different from what we talk about right now with Rust which I'm sure will never be finished um, versus this where everyone, it seems like, like I, I watched the, the Siskel and Ebert episode where they talk about this and they don't really express anything about concern for safety protocols. Just, Hey, there was an accident and it was tragic. Um, and everybody focused on this as sort of a tribute to Brandon Lee, um, which is, it, it, it is and can be, but it sort of surprises me that there wasn't more, of an outcry about this being um, in poor taste or just that more should have been done rather than just like the show goes on, let's finish the movie, more money in the budget. Yeah. Um, but that is what happened. Yeah. Different, different time, obviously not, um, not as much of the 24 hour news cycle or now the constant news cycle. Right. So all that plays a part of it. And I think we're more sensitive as people, you know, but, um, but no doubt, like, just such a preventable situation should have never should have never taken place. Absolutely. But for for certainly at least partially because of that, people were very curious and, and people also did end up really liking this movie. It uh, was not necessarily tipped to become a big film even before it was made. It was almost a direct video film and then, you know, switch distributors. But ultimately, it was a huge box office hit. It grossed $94 million on its budget of $23 million. It was also uh, nominated for three MTV Movie Awards, which seems like exactly the kind of awards that uh, a movie like this should get. It was nominated for Best Movie 
and Best Actor for Brandon Lee did not win those awards, but it did win a Best Song Award, uh, which of course appropriate for the success of the soundtrack for the song Big Empty by Stone Temple Pilots. And the soundtrack was a huge hit, maybe even arguably a bigger hit than the movie. Uh, it did hit number one on the Billboard charts for one week and spent a total of 44 weeks on the chart. And I definitely still have the CD uh, <laughs> in my house, which I imagine Dave does too. Sure. Sold 3.8 million copies. Uh, Brandon Lee also won the 1995 Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Actor. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, not a movie that obviously was going to go to the Oscars or anything like that, but for the demographic that it uh, was aimed at, it was, uh, it was a huge success. And critics were mixed to positive on it, I would say. Like I said, I watched Siskel and Ebert talking about it, and they were split. Ebert liked this movie a lot. He gave it a thumbs up. He really liked not only Brandon Lee's performance, but also the overall atmosphere uh, and visual style. Siskel, however, gave it a thumbs down and did not feel like the style was enough to make up for the uh, narrative shortcomings. Um, in his written review, Roger Ebert said, the Crow is, of course, the movie Brandon Lee was making when he was accidentally shot dead during the filming of a scene. It is not without irony that the story involves a hero who returns from the dead, just as, in a sense, Lee has with the release of this film. It is a stunning work of visual style, the best version of a comic book universe I've seen, and Brandon Lee clearly demonstrates in it that he might have become an action star had he lived. And that seems to be kind of the big theme even now about this film is that Brandon Lee could have been launched into this huge career if he had not been killed on the set of this film. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear through this movie. And also the like the production design is the other star of the movie, right? So the music, the production design, Brandon Lee, those are the three stars of the movie. The other thing that I found interesting in Ebert's review was he said it's Lee, speaking of Brandon Lee, Lee's best film and better than any Bruce Lee movies. Yeah, I don't know if he means better in terms of the acting or just as a movie. I mean, and I can see that because Bruce Lee, as a, and you know, having watched a small number of Bruce Lee movies, as amazing as he is in terms of his martial arts abilities, he never really was in like a great movie. And he also died before he had the chance to really do something like that, where if he had become, you know, he was just becoming a big star and would have been able to go beyond kind of the B-movie exploitation stuff that he had worked in and be in a bigger budget film, could have been in something great, but never was. I haven't seen enough Bruce Lee movies to say that that's true necessarily, but I don't know. Have you watched Bruce Lee movies? No, before? but I do love The Last Dragon. Okay. Show enough. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, nor had I seen, I think Brandon Lee did some small things before this, but this was really a, a Yeah, uh, the two biggest, I think, were Showdown in Little Tokyo, which had Dolph Lundgren and uh, Rapid Fire, which produced a few sequels. At that time, you can make movies like this and get those sequels out, right? It, it, it still happens with these, with these low-level films. So uh, Karen James in the New York Times was less, slightly less enthusiastic overall. She said, it is a dark, lurid revenge fantasy and not the breakthrough star-making movie some people have claimed, but it is a genre film of a high order, stylish and smooth. Its dark look of midnight terror and its skewed cityscape link it to the Batman movies, but The Crow makes even the bleak Batman Returns seem like a kiddie's playground. The film does offer promise for the future of its director, Alex Proyas, a 33-year-old Australian who is a veteran of music videos and commercials. Mr. Proyas's flair suggests he might make the leap to mainstream success. Sleek and accidentally haunting though it is, The Crow belongs in its niche. And I kind of agree that this movie has been maybe because of some of those uh, extraneous aspects elevated beyond just a dumb B movie. I mean, as I was watching it, I was like, that's all that this really is. It, it almost surprises me that this would have been a theatrical release because it really feels like the kind of thing that would have gone straight to video. Like, you know, here's 
kind of a dumb action revenge story with a, a, a bit of cool visuals to it. Well, I think the soundtrack helped, right? To, that helped mainstream it and obviously the story around it. Also, I think if it was just going to go to video, especially in the 90s, there would have been a lot more boobs josh because there were a lot of <laughs> boobs in those direct-to-video movies in the 90s so. there are definitely a lot of boobs in the later crow movies i think or at least in the ones that i saw so maybe because they went straight to video that was what happened um so finally uh owen gleberman in entertainment weekly was the least enthused he said were it not for Brandon Lee's death on the set of The Crow, he was killed by a gun that was supposed to be firing blanks, the movie itself would be little more than your basic heavy metal occult revenge thriller, complete with rain-swept futuristic dreamscapes right out of Blade Runner and Batman. The truth, though, is that what happened to Lee, who was Bruce Lee's son, lends this blood-spattered action fantasy a creepy resonance it otherwise wouldn't have had. Lee's performance is by far the best thing about The Crow. Unfortunately, he's just good enough to make you wish that the movie had had a whisper of storytelling invention to go along with its showy visual design. And certainly the story here is uh, not. Great. I mean, you got, look, they were backed into a corner, obviously, you know, with all the rewrites and how to make it complete. So. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to defend it, but I mean, I can see where the difficulties were. Um, I found uh, the critic James Berardinelli, Josh. He had a, a kind of a chilling phrase to describe it was art imitating death. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're not necessarily wrong. You know, obviously, inadvertently, the themes of this movie go along with the sort of tragic death of an artist that uh, was taken down before he was able to re reach his potential. Of course, Hangman's joke, as Jason's fanzine will document, never got the rock stardom that they potentially could have. But yeah, certainly there is a lot uh, here, maybe more so than other movies where some kind of tragedy has uh, befallen the film during its making and it's had to, you know, make up for that. And we watch the movie being aware that this actor died, whether it was in an accident on set or in some other way, there are certainly other movies where they end up completing them. Um, but in terms of the story, yeah, they had to do some rewrites and reshoots, but the bulk of it was the same. I mean, Brandon Lee has had shot the bulk of his part before he left. So or before he left, before he died. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I don't think you can entirely blame the storytelling deficiencies on the fact that they had to shoot around his absence. And I mean, definitely watching it this time, it struck me like this is a very poorly written movie. Uh, I've never, I had never seen it before this time. So <laughs> I think, you know, I tried to get swept up with the uh, visuals, which I think it did do. And then, you know, I like, you know, I agree with you because this was one where like I started it and, you know, it was late. So I had to, you know, I couldn't watch it all in one sitting because I'm uh, daddy needs to sleep. Um, <laughs> and so like I watched the first half hour and I'm like, oh, this is super fun. And then I came back and I was like, nope, not fun anymore. <laughs> you know, so because <laughs> I mean, could this have this, you know, the whole thing could have been told in 12 minutes, right? Right. Yes. It's very, very basic. And there's not much suspense to it. There's not much uh, surprise to where, you know, Eric Draven comes back from the dead. He says, I'm going to kill all the people who were responsible for killing me and my fiance. And then yeah, one by one, <laughs> one by one, very straightforward style. Uh, we should say, of course, that this is also, as Ebert uh, alluded to, it is based on a comic book by James Obar, uh, also called The Crow, which was a, kind of an underground thing. It wasn't a Marvel or DC comic. It wasn't a massive hit. Really, the movie helped The Crow comic book become a lot more well-known than it was. Um, but that source material and the basics of the story, as well as the characters, do all come from the comic by James Obar, which I uh, have not read. But, uh, and I, you know, I was a comics reader uh, at the time, but it wasn't something that was on my radar as I was reading like the X-Men and Superman and stuff like that. It was it was too, uh, too underground for me. So, Josh, did you see this in the theater? I probably did. I definitely saw it at the time. 
and liked it at the time. But like Dave, I was more into the soundtrack, uh, like a lot more into the soundtrack. Um, although weirdly, this is another one of these things that that was my recollection. Like oh, I was super into this soundtrack and I have the CD and then I was watching the movie and hearing so many songs. I was like, mm, I don't remember this song. And of course the thing really for me was that I bought the soundtrack cause it had like four songs on it that I wanted to hear. And then as a teenager, I, uh, took those four songs from the CD recorded them onto a compilation cassette along with some songs from other soundtracks and never listened to the rest of the mm. soundtrack. So like Stone Temple Pilots, Pantera, Nine Inch Nails, uh, For Love Not Lisa, who had one song that was on here. Like all the hard rock stuff I was into and listened to a lot. Uh, Rage Against the Machine is also on here. But I, Dave, I was like, Unlike you, I never liked the sort of gothy stuff. I don't like The Cure. Mm. And so I really had never listened to that probably since I bought the CD. Like watching this, especially the, the theme song, the Jane Syberry song. That is a, hor that is a horrible song. That's the worst, the worst song track there. on the yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah, it is a horrible song. And listening to that, you know, as the movie ended, I was like, this is a horrible <laughs> song. And I don't think I've heard it in, you know, 25 plus years or whatever. So, but yeah, I, I definitely was into the whole aesthetic of it as well. I, uh, like Dave did not dress, uh, you know, in goth makeup or anything like that, but certainly was, was into that whole vibe. Dave and I were the goths at yeah. the time. Jason was the guy who was beating. Yes. <laughs> you were my friend in high school. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. Josh, you and Dave are both so pale. I don't think you needed the makeup. I would, I wouldn't have beaten you up. I would have made fun of you, but I made fun of everyone. So I'd like to think I was equal opportunity on that. Um, yeah. Hey, Josh, did this music um, influence your high school band, Anime, in any way? Anime. Yeah, probably so. Thank you for bringing up Anime, my uh, <laughs> awesome band that I was the lead singer of, much like Eric Draven. Um, yeah, certainly we were influenced by. Rage Against the Machine and Pantera and Nine Inch Nails and uh, bands like Stone Temple Pilots, bands like that. I don't think we covered any of them, but we covered Danzig and Tool, who definitely... Violent Femmes. We did cover Violent Femmes, yeah, who are also on here. But we did like a hard rock version. And I'm pretty sure at that time, that was literally the only Violent Femmes song any of us had <laughs> ever heard in the band. And we just picked it. But yes, uh, certainly... If, if not specifically the Crow soundtrack, like the the sound of those bands, the hard rock of the 90s was 100% our biggest influence. And Dave, you were not in a band in high school. No, I wasn't. No, I had no musical talent yet. It's so weird. I had no musical talent yeah. either, but it didn't stop. Me. Fair, fair. Where can we find <laughs> Anime online, Josh? Nowhere. Ever, definitely not anywhere online. No anime anywhere. I, you, ha, you can find anime on a cassette in my closet and that's where it should stay. <laughs> they had a, um, they had, I remember when the band formed, they had one member of the band. I think it was, was it your bassist who had never played before, but he's like, I want to be in the band. And they're like, okay, get a bass and you're in. And then you got a bass and then he was your bassist until you fired him for not being good enough for your band. Well, okay, two things. One, there's actually quite a- A long uh, history of that in music, yeah. A long yeah, history of that, I exactly. Agree. Of people who went on to become- Yeah, very that's garage rock um, in the 60s. I wasn't knocking it. I was just telling the story, yeah. so. <laughs> um, but no, it was not the bassist. It was our uh, second guitar player who did that. And yeah, he sucked. He bought a guitar, but he actually, I want to say he didn't even- he like borrowed a guitar from the other guitar player for too long. You know, he was really not dedicated. I think he just wanted to say that he was in a band and uh, he wouldn't, I feel like he missed some practices and yeah, he definitely did not follow through on his commitment to learning to become a guitar player. And I think when we kicked him out, we of course, you know, we're teenagers, it's high school. It was, we felt like it was very dramatic. We all kind of, the rest of us all got together and confronted him. Like you are no longer in the band. And he was like, okay. <laughs> it was really very anticlimactic. So you didn't throw him out of a window where he fell to no. his death below and you know. No, he didn't return from the grave to wreak revenge on us. Nothing like that. He just was still our friend. Yeah as far as I can recall. And the band was much better without him in yeah, it. Yeah, it got better, I admit it, so. I mean, not that it was good, but it was uh, at least 
you know, uh, more competent without the guy who did not actually know how to play the guitar. This has been a great episode of Anime, the <laughs> podcast history of Josh's band. You brought you brought it up, man. You brought it up. Uh, do you, getting back to the crow? Do you uh, have any other thoughts on the background of this film? James? Well, no. I the only thing I want to say is I like you know. Did you call it Devil's Night? Did you did you celebrate Devil's Night growing up or anything? No, I think because the, the movie is set in Detroit. That's a very and, Detroit thing. Right. If I recall, it was a thing that was really unique to Detroit. And maybe now people talk about it more. But the idea of it being this night for mayhem and crime, I feel like there were news reports about how that happened in Detroit, but not necessarily. Elsewhere. That was Devil's Night. Now, Dave, we grew up in similar places. We had Cabbage Night, which was the night before uh, Halloween. And uh we wouldn't set fires or anything, but that was that was the night where you could go around and like toilet paper people's houses or throw eggs at their cars, sure. do dumb stuff and just like childish vandalism. I don't remember the name Cabbage Night, though, but definitely yeah, that's in, th- the night. That before. sounds fake. Did you make that up? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why was it called that? I don't know. I'm going to throw cabbage at you, though. <laughs> <laughs> thank you see this is jason's instinct to to beat up the goths yep, yep. you know i would have protected you if someone tried to beat you up back then or today you know that thank you thank you jason luckily no one was no one was beating me up in high school it was middle school <laughs> yeah. where they were bullying me everyone was mostly nice to me in high school <laughs> anyway let's not talk dave about had a question about it i could tell about so. about me being bullied. no no i was gonna say it, it would be a good name for one of the uh, directors video sequels the crow cabbage night would be (laughs) (laughs) yes that would be perfect (laughs) we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the crow welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our special retrospective season we are looking back to our 1994 first season for Dave's pick, The Crow. Uh, oh, that's going to hurt someone's ears. That was my impression of listening. a crow. Thank you for that. So, so Dave, you talked a little bit about it, uh, but what, what did you love about this movie, especially when you first saw it? I guess there's a lot of like that teen, dark, angsty stuff going on here in what maybe I liked about it because... Yeah, it, as a 41-year-old adult, um, it just, I don't know, it did not work as well this time around. But I feel like I i guess back then, you know, all things dark, gothy, comic booky, even in the, you know, in video games, I was like that too with things like Mortal Kombat and all that kind of stuff. Like anything like that was just dark and, and drenched in black and all that like was cool back then. And it, Jason mentioned the production design earlier as being a character. I, I do still think that holds up as well as some of the music, maybe not all of it. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot here that just doesn't work. The only thing is, Dave, I don't understand what angstiness did you relate to of the man who was murdered and came back to avenge all the murders? Uh, oh, the avenge the murders by killing them. Like it wasn't a love story where like the guy couldn't build up the courage to tell the girl that he, how he felt about her or anything like that. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say that I think with teen angst, like not that Dave or, or anyone who was a fan of this film was, you know, uh, murdered and had to come back to avenge their death, <laughs> but just the, the angst, the like general sense of angst. And, you know, as a teenager, you feel these big emotions and they feel like the most important thing in the world. And you relate it to like, oh, yeah, my angst about talking to a girl at school or, you know, someone doesn't like me or whatever dumb stuff. It's it feels like it's like you've been murdered and you have to avenge your death. And so, you know, movies like this, they're they're sort of like a representation, not a literal representation, but a, a, a metaphorical representation of the big dark emotions that you might feel. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of with, I'm with Dave in that I certainly uh, was drawn to kind of dark moody stuff as a teenager. Um, Although I wasn't, I mean, I liked this movie, but this wasn't one of those movies where I feel like, you know, I revisited it over and over and over again. It was the music more than the movie itself. Um, But I I feel like that. Was it like the, the craft for you? Was that your movie, Josh? 
I yeah, absolutely right? yes. The craft was my movie. I saw the craft multiple times. I have my the craft VHS tape here still. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and I watch. I watched the, the. This is also not relevant, but I did watch the craft not that long ago because the terrible like sequel reboot thing came out. And the, the craft, I it held up better than the crow, but not as well as I uh, hoped it would. Yeah. unfortunately. Um, but yeah, the craft was was a hundred percent my jam. Just to add to <laughs> what you were just saying, though, uh, about not exactly knowing how much you loved it back then, but you you know you definitely liked it more. I also, while I was watching this, I was trying to think like. Did I actually revisit this film many times? I certainly own it on DVD, but how many times did I watch it over the years? Maybe not many. Like, I just remember at, when I was 14, I was like, oh, that was so cool, you know? But that's pretty much all I remember. Yeah, I feel like the coolness of it was a big thing and like the logo and just look of it rather than necessarily. But I'm sure there were people then and now who will watch this movie over and over and over again because it is that kind of movie that if it really emotionally uh, resonates for you, you would watch it over and over again. I mean, again, I think sadly all of that is tied into Brandon Lee, you know, and he is the charismatic lead, you know, who um, is this the greatest performance on film? No, but could it, did it show potential to be a leading man? Yes. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing is, it's tough to separate the movie from the story on this one. This is one of those where like, you know, like when we talked about Boondock Saints, which I think is pretty much almost the same movie, you know, we get I get wrapped up in the all the behind the scenes stuff and that helps me enjoy it. I think people might have been emotionally tied to this because of all the stuff that happened, sadly, with this film. Oh, absolutely. And 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 sadly, given that it's a real person that died. But the truth is that the whole teen angst aspect of it, it feeds into that as well. Like, oh, this tragic person who died, you know, just like Kurt Cobain or, or any, you know, artist who dies tragically at a young age, young people who have these big emotions will, will gravitate toward that. So that's absolutely true. But again, one thing that struck me watching the movie this time is that Brandon Lee is not good in this movie. <laughs> He's this not a bad, bad performance. He's it's not bad. I thought he was really bad. Uh, uh, I, and but but I, I will say, and not to speak bad of the dead, but you know, like I will say part of that is the character. I, I think the character is so cringeworthy. and there's not I can't imagine who could make any of that really work very well, yeah, that's true. I mean, it is a ridiculous comic book character. I mean, the character who is the crow is named Eric D. Raven. <laughs> and I mean, ah! <laughs> Thank you for that. So, you know, it's the kind of thing, maybe it works in the comic and I haven't read the comic, but it is a ridiculous character. I, I feel like though, there are so many ridiculous comic book characters where we can look at them in, in good comic book movies and say, you know, someone like, like Heath Ledger as the Joker or something like that, where that character is absurd. And you would think maybe no one can really make that a, a good performance, a good character, but a really good actor can do that. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe Brandon Lee just wasn't experienced enough. And maybe this would have led to a great career that you can see a bit of promise. But I really, the one thing that I was figuring going into this is this is the Brandon Lee movie. Like I'm going to be impressed again and sad that he never got a chance to do anything else. And is his it's bad. It is a bad performance. So you're it not sad awkward. that he would that he was murdered on the set, Josh? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> not not at all. Not at all. Nothing of value was lost. Um, <laughs> obviously, of course, it's sad. And and I can see that uh, there is a bit of promise that if this movie had come out and he had lived, I think first of all this movie would not have been as big a hit. It might have been uh, you know, a minor cult thing. And it would have given him a chance to be in a better movie and not and dead. maybe and mm -hmm. not dead also. Um, and, you know, and maybe have a lengthy career after that. But no, it, it, it's it, he's he's bad. But more than that, almost every single actor in this movie is bad. I thought Ernie Hudson was the only one who showed up yeah. with the level of experience yeah. and professionalism to deliver the garbage writing in this movie. Yeah, this is, remember when we talked about Ghostbusters and <laughs> you were talking about, you know, how Ernie Hudson maybe got the short end of the stick and I was like, he's been in like too many things to count. He's a 
He's a bring your lunch pail to work and do the job type guy. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Ernie Hudson, who plays the cop who investigates the death of Eric Draven and his uh, fiance, and then becomes sort of the, I don't know, sidekick or whatever to uh, resurrected Eric Draven, the crow, helps him track down all of the bad guys from this ridiculous gang. I mean, can we talk about the villains in this movie and how they might as well have been from like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday morning cartoon? I mean, is that any worse or like, I don't want to say worse, but is, and I don't, I'm not defending this, but like, what's the difference between this and uh, the Joker, like you mentioned from 80, Batman 89 and all that stuff, you know? Well, right. I mean, I think like I was just saying, part of the difference is the acting is that Jack Nicholson can make that work. And none of the actors here are Jack Nicholson. You know, Michael Wincott, who plays the main villain, Top Dollar, I think is yeah. his name. Horrible name. Um, all the villains have horrible names, which, which you know, to, to be fair to the screenwriters here, all come from the comic book. Yeah. Yeah. He's Michael Wincott is no Jack Nicholson. And Alex Proyas, as much as the production design looks cool is no Tim Burton. And part of that too is, you know, a director working with actors to modulate those performances and make them work. And this movie, unlike Batman 89, which certainly has a tone of campiness, especially in Jack Nicholson's performance as the Joker, this movie takes itself incredibly seriously because it's all about dark angst. And so when you get these absurd villains with their dumb names and their horribly written dialogue, it's not played for laughs, really, and it, but it becomes more laughable because of that. I think Proyas, was this his first feature, right? This was it. It was his second feature, his second feature. I don't think he was ready necessarily for all that came with this one, right? You know, visually he's great, but maybe he wasn't mature enough to handle all of that, you know, and get the actors to where they needed to be. Um, because, yeah, the bad guys are just, you know, like you said, it's Bebop and, and Rocksteady in black <laughs> trench coats or something like that. Yes. But I will say I liked, uh, you know, they all get killed in different ways. I did like the one kill where I think it was T-Bird where he ties him to the car. Like he kills him in three different ways at once. He ties, <laughs> so yeah, He ties him to his car, puts the gas pedal down so the car is going to drive into like a river, right? And so he's going to drown, but he also makes the car explode. And it's just like a lot of, a lot of murder on T-Bird. There's, there's definitely, I think, multiple moments where things explode in this movie, like that would not have exploded. And it's just, it just is like the force of will of <laughs> Eric Draven that makes stuff explode. Um, yeah, it's, I feel like those kinds of moments that are so over the top, or when we see him, you know, the one, guy who does the knife throwing and he's like, I never miss. And then he just misses like multiple immediately. times immediately. <laughs> and, and he's eventually dead with, with like eight knives in his chest and, and ditto the other tin guy tin. who gets killed with all Tintin. Tin. Uh, and then the, the other one who gets killed with all the, the needles in his chest. Fun boy. And it looks so, <laughs> thank you for all of these, all of these excellent, excellent names. Um, I mean, it looks silly when you see those corpses. And I feel like if this movie maybe had been campy, it could have been fun. And I realize that's and that's not the tone of the comic. And the comic is inspired by like James O'Barr's own like serious personal, you know, uh, heavy feelings, uh, depression and all of that. And maybe they're trying to honor that along with honoring Brandon Lee. But I don't feel like any of the seriousness in this movie works. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, you know, like we said Alex McDowell's production design is a highlight here. Graham uh, Revel did the music and, you know, Brandon Lee did his thing. And I mean, I think we got it, right? <laughs> yeah. What do we, do you want to mention uh, Sarah, the little kid who, who's also his, his friend, uh, Rochelle Davis, the actor? Wasn't that just a Batman ripoff where like they take her up to the top of the tower and, you know, so, eh. that was, yeah, the climax where she's in peril. But, you know, she's she's sort of an effort to give Eric Draven a, a human connection. Well, and I think a lot of that had to be part of the rewrites, right? Because it's her narration. Yes, yeah. that's true. And that is one thing where maybe the rewrites do hurt because it opens with that narration from her, which is just horribly overwritten. And I think like right from the start, I was like, uh oh, <laughs> um, and that's something that they had to add in with the rewrite. So 
Yeah. So Jason, uh, I guess we're uh, we're tapped out on this one. I mean, we, so. I know we don't want to keep going in circles. You, you've um, you've already killed the crow yet again. So. <laughs> I mean, I didn't hate it. I just think that I remembered it more positively and was slightly surprised and baffled. Yeah. At how not very That's good how it I is. felt. It's too. interesting because I've never seen it. So I was able to be like, well, uh, there was a reason I never saw it, but I'll just enjoy <laughs> the, um, you know, set design and stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah. yeah, we can rate this thing out of five morphine needles if you want. So <laughs> that's a highly appropriate thing to use. So let's do it. What do you I give it? I give it two and a half. I like the look, and you know there was enough. The music is is cool, and uh, you know Brandon Lee, I do think would have gone on to become a big star. It gets, it gets two and a half morphine needles, Josh, all injected into you. Thank you. I'm going to also inject it with two and a half morphine needles because I I didn't hate it. Uh, Like I said, it's more more about just the disappointment of, oh, actually, this isn't very good. Um, But I think there is some promise there and it's possible that Brandon Lee could have gone on to great things. But this would not have been one of those things. So, uh, Dave, how would you rate this? Uh, I'm actually also going two and a half, the same as you guys. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just surprising how not good it is, but it was fun to watch, though. It's it's not all bad. Yeah. So I guess what we really learned is we should have stuck with our original plan in season one and not given Dave picks. <laughs> I, I had a whole other. I had so many 94 movies I could have picked from. But uh, yeah, what are you going to do? I mean, I probably enjoyed this and especially revisiting my you know childhood experience more than some of the other movies that Dave has picked. So I'm OK with it. Name like two or three others you were going to pick, Dave. Uh, I was thinking about Speed, Natural Born Killers and The Professional. Those were my three top other ones. Yeah, those, those would have been good, Josh. I would have taken I, any of those. Yeah, but I mean, you know, uh, plenty of interesting. It's not like we haven't had anything to talk about here that's uh, notable and interesting. So I'm uh, I'm good with it. It's yep. all good. Let's come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of the crow. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special retrospective season, we are returning to 1994 to talk about. Dave's pick, The Crow, starring and Brandon Josh. Lee. I got to interrupt you because I got a surprise for you, Josh. I got a surprise. Oh, uh, are you returning from the dead to avenge your murder? Nope. But I've been working on this the whole show, and it's official. In the next edition of the Devil's Punchline, there will be a half-page <laughs> cutout of Anime. Oh, advertising you. you and your music. That is so <laughs> kind of you. I because I, you know, the truth is that if you are a fan of hangman's joke, then you probably will enjoy the music of anime. I mean, that's what the caption's going to say on your picture. <laughs> Thank you. I still, I have a, you know, I've got a promo photo of anime that I can, uh, can send you to use. It's going in, it's going in the zine, baby. <laughs> I appreciate that. So as we've talked about, you know, the big, the biggest story around this movie at the time and still is the death of Brandon Lee. And I feel like, you know, just like rock stars who die young, like Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse or Jimi Hendrix, the, the tragedy of Brandon Lee's death has led to this sort of idolization of him. Well, you got to separate those. Those were, if not suicide, self-inflicted, shall we say, right? You know? Um, right. Well, but you could, you could go with, uh, you know, the members of, members of Leonard Skinner who died in a plane crash or... You know, other other people who died young at the height or at the beginning of their popularity. Sure, sure. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously resonant to pop culture to this day, right? You know, uh, there's that South Park episode where um, Satan has the uh, Christmas party, I think. Right. And he says, no one can dress as the crow because everyone always dresses as the crow, you know, and everything like <laughs> yeah, that. True. So people still uh, people still dress as the crow, Josh. They do. And the, the crow, as a, I mean, beyond just Brandon Lee, the crow as a character has continued in popularity. As, as we've uh, alluded to a little here, there were multiple sequels to this film, uh, which were not successful. But uh, starting with The Crow City of Angels in 1996, the Crow Salvation in 2000 and The Crow Wicked Prayer in 2005, uh, all of which feature different actors, of course, and different characters. Instead of following up on Eric Draven, 
Each one of those movies features a new character who dies and comes back to avenge their death. The Crow City of Angels I actually did watch is very, very bad. Um, that one was was poised to really take this franchise, you know, given the success of the original, they thought we're going to make this into a whole big franchise. And it was a massive failure uh, featuring Vincent Perez as the new version of The Crow, as well as an adult version of the kid, Sarah, from this film. So that's the connection is that she's grown up and she's now, of course, uh, sexy and played by Mia Kirshner. And she kind of falls in love with the new crow, um, but she also functions as like his guide because she has experienced this in the past. And it's very bad, although it does feature Iggy Pop as one of the bad guys. And uh, he gets to say, fuck you, bird dick, to the crow. So <laughs> that was really- That sounds amazing. Probably, yeah. that, was, that was probably the best part of the movie. Um, but did, Dave, did you own the soundtrack to the Crow City of Angels? Because I certainly do. I do not. And I know that it leaned a little more metal, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it did. And and looking at those CDs recently, I realized I liked that soundtrack a lot better. There yeah. were far more as like White Zombie and the Deftones and uh, Bush. And uh, I definitely a Hole is on it. They had a big hit with their song from it. So that was definitely uh, Filter. Their song was a big sure. hit from that one, too. Yeah. So that was that was more my speed, I think. But the movie is bad. And Dave, I think, so did you watch one of the later sequels recently? Actually, just this morning, I uh, I I had never seen any of the sequels, but this morning I watched The Crow Wicked Prayer uh, on a recommendation from my friend Ryan, who said that it is just absolutely hilarious. And he was right. This is one of the best bad movies I've watched in a long time. That's exciting. I was just dying laughing. It stars Edward Furlong as The Crow. Also, uh, David Boreanaz and Tara Reid and Dennis Hopper. Uh, it, it's just absolutely ridiculous. And it takes place in Lake Ravasu, which I just thought was hilarious. <laughs> Where is <laughs> like, like Lake, Lake Havasu? Havasu, but it sounds kind of ravaging, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. What, what, what yeah. platform is this on, Dave? Uh, I rented it on Amazon Prime for $2.99. Cool. Um, and then, you know, the one before that, Salvation Kirsten Dunst was in, and that you said is from 2000, and she was already like a hot star at that point. I'm surprised she was in that one. Right. Well, that one, I think, uh, almost went to theaters, but because the previous one had failed, they pulled it. So, you know, perhaps it was set to be a bigger project than it was when she first signed on to it. Uh, there was also a Crow TV series in 1998 called The Crow Stairway to Heaven that aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. And weirdly, despite what they did in the movies, where clearly they were trying to be respectful of Brandon Lee, in the TV series, the character is Eric Draven, uh, played by Mark Dacascos. And not only that, but all, as it, it looked just from the listing, of course, I've not actually watched it, but all of the supporting characters, Shelley and Sarah and all of the same villains are all in that uh, TV series that lasted for one season. So I'm not sure how they kept that story going for 22 episodes, but they did. Well, Rob Zombie was going to do The Crow 2037, and it's almost fun to read about all these like potential reboots of The Crow because it's like, oh, Bradley Cooper's attached. Nope, now he's got Mark Wahlberg's attached. Nope, now he's got Channing Tatum's attached. Nope, now he's got Ryan Gosling's attached. Nope, now he's got James McAvoy's attached. Nope, no, he's gone. And literally, I haven't even read half the names I've written down. The last one was Jason Momoa. You know, it's just like, uh, maybe we can let the crow not live anymore. So, yeah, I mean, they've been trying so hard since probably since 2005, when the last movie was released to come up with a new version of this. And I'm sure they will, because we're in the era where literally anything that anyone has heard of will be rebooted. Alex Proyas specifically, Jason, I think you read part of that quote earlier, has been kind of opposed to the idea of rebooting yeah. The Crow because he wants it to be Brandon Lee's legacy. But it's already been tarnished by all the crappy sequels anyway. Mm -hmm. Dave, when you guys were talking about the soundtrack, did you know that New Order was approached to like do the soundtrack originally? That would have been a soundtrack I would have wanted, Josh. But I got to say, we are uh, dancing around the real thing here, which is the biggest influence of this film was when Sting changed his character from the beach blonde surfer dude in WCW as the franchise to the Crow character to fight the NWO. And that was the hottest wrestling angle for over a year and helped WCW beat 
uh, Monday Night Raw for like 83 weeks in a row, Josh. Why haven't we talked about that yet? You're absolutely well, we, right. That's a big thing. That I forgot all about that. Yeah. I Yeah, I was not a wrestling fan, really. Certainly not by that point. But it, it's perfect that Jason has never seen The Crow, but is very <laughs> familiar with the pro wrestling version of it. Sting, Josh, is now 62. He's in AEW, and his character is more aligned with The Crow now than it's than it with, like, that beach surfer dude from back in the day. He's kind of like a Crow-Joker mix, but uh, but he's still going. So Sting, Sting's the man, bro. Good, good for him. Um, and yeah, the the look of the crow is so influential on tons of things. I feel like every version of the Joker that came after this, whether it's Heath Ledger or Jared Leto or Joaquin Phoenix, all are influenced by the crow. Um, and maybe be, the crow, of course, itself was influenced by the Joker. But I feel like, and and even further, Batman movies or other comic book movies, like the look of this. And the darkness of it, um, you know, this came out at a time when there weren't that many comic book movies other than those Batman movies coming out. But the embrace of the dark storytelling from comic books and taking seriously stupid villains with dumb names, I feel like is is part of the legacy of this film. So, Josh, I'll give you a, a few more things. Darius Wolski, who's the director of photography does a lot with uh, Ridley Scott, including Last Duel and House of Gucci from the past year. Alex McDowell, who we've shouted out for production design, did Fight Club, which we've obviously covered, and The Terminal and Fear and Loathing. And now he's got like some type of crazy, I don't even know if I understood it. It was like some type of sim institute where it's about problem solving by building like model worlds or something like that it was uh sure. above my level look i could tell you all about sting but this one is <laughs> over, over my head so right now that that's that's fair uh alex Proyas, as we said this was his second film and it was a big breakout for him briefly he went on uh immediately after this to make dark city which uh is also a hugely influential and a huge cult following roger ebert was a massive champion of that film and then he did go on to work in Hollywood, not exactly uh, a stellar Hollywood career, but he directed I, Robot with Will Smith, the film uh, Knowing with Nicolas Cage, which is yeah. another one that weirdly has a, a, a critical cult following, including Roger Ebert, who thought it was brilliant, uh, and most recently Gods of Egypt, which is terrible. All those movies, I think, are not good. Um, and he's he's not prolific. He has tons of things that he's always working on and trying to get going that never really get off the ground, including sequels to Dark City and stuff. So I feel like he didn't really live up to the potential that he showed in this film. Well, I'm going to disagree only because I listened to an interview with him on Indie Film Hustle from the last year. He's back in Australia. He's creating his own studio. He's basically said like he can't work within the parameters of the studio system, but he wants to make bigger budget stuff like this. So he's figuring out his own way to do it in his own place, right? In his home country. And he's also got this new platform called Vidiverse, which is supposed to, you know, be a revenue generator for short films. And you'll be happy to know two of my short films were rejected from Vidiverse. <laughs> oh, nice. I don't know what you guys are laughing at. You collaborated on those films. So. Oh, okay. So we all, we all lose here. But no, I mean, good for him that he's doing that stuff. And I feel like maybe then finally, if he is able to independently make a genre film like The Crow or like Dark City, he'll be able to follow up on that initial promise. I just don't think that he has. Uh, sure. At this point. But I think like now is the time where people are like, hey, we want to make movies outside of the studio system that are um, studio esque and let's figure out ways to do it. You know? Yeah, I'm all for that. I'm uh, I'm I'm all in favor of that. Um, the soundtrack, of course, was also very influential. I feel like the 90s uh, were this heyday of soundtrack albums being massively successful on like the billboard charts and especially the, the particular kind of soundtrack that this is where it's basically just a compilation album of a certain genre or a certain uh, approach or whatever. And, you know, we got to the point later on in the nineties, I think where all, a lot of these soundtracks were almost tangential to the movie. 
Like there were just a, a, a compilation album that happened to have the movie's name on it. And there were a lot of these albums that were like songs uh, from and inspired by this right. movie where it didn't really have anything to do with it. I think of like the Judgment Night soundtrack. Movies inspired by the soundtrack that we, yeah. we got the rights to. So. <laughs> it could be, it could be. But I feel like the success of this was a major catalyst for that. This and maybe a couple others like singles, the Cameron Crowe movie from a couple years well, ago. Well, that whole movie is about that that time in that place. Well, well right. But I feel like the idea of the soundtrack being its sort of own having its own existence and being a compilation album of a particular style or a particular aesthetic. Obviously, Cameron Crowe was much more invested and involved in curating a soundtrack like that. But I, you know, again, I just think of myself as a teenager. And what did I do? I bought those soundtracks. I never saw singles as a teenager, but I bought the soundtrack. The Crow uh, City of Angels, I saw yesterday, but never before that, but I've owned the soundtrack for 20 plus years. So I feel like there was a lot of that. There were three in a row right here. Uh, this Natural Born Killers, which also had Nine Inch Nails and was produced actually the, the whole soundtrack by Trent Reznor. And then uh, Lost Highway was also. And so the, these all were part of like a thing of that late 90s era. Right. And I think a lot of that of people getting the soundtrack and being into the music and not really caring or paying attention to the movie. Yeah. I did want to do one more shout out to some of the character actors in this movie that we didn't mention who've gone on to, you know, uh, prolific character actor careers. Tony Todd, a.k.a. the Candyman, uh, is in this as one of the henchmen of the bad guy. John Polito, great in Coen Brothers films, uh, so plays the the pawn shop owner in, in exactly the same mode that he plays probably like literally every character that he's ever played. We could work together and exchange information. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and 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 Bai Ling, who plays the half sister of Top Dollar, half sister, full lover. Exactly. Uh -huh. Who he's having a really unnecessary plot element, uh, incestuous relationship with. She is insane and very prolific in really bad B movies where she just shows up and goes nuts for like two scenes, and you're like, what is happening? Clearly, no one wrote lines for her. If I may, also in a film I scored called Better Criminal. Uh, and I Ooh. got to meet her at the premiere. She was very nice. Uh, also stars Tom Sizemore. Oh, uh, nice. Is, uh, is, she, is she weird in person as she is in movies? Yes, weird, but <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, I'm good. surprised, Dave, you didn't mention T-Bird because he was in John Wick. But of course, sure. I like, you know, our Walter Hill connection. Forget, you know, Streets of Fire. We talked about the Warriors. He's the guy in Warriors who said, Warriors, come out and play. I mean, if if you've done that, then what else do you even need in your career? <laughs> True. Uh, something that Dave scores, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's really, that's when Bai Ling knew that she had made it, was when yes. she was in a movie scored by Dave Rosen. Yes. So that is The Crow, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on the social media. Yeah, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, my website, GopherJason.com, needs a crow to come and resurrect it. Um, <laughs> I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, my website, uh, only barely clinging to life, JoshBellHatesEverything.com. Also at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And I might as well plug my very dark, very gloomy, very angsty instrumental music. Uh, you can check it out on all of the music services, David Rosen, and on my website, bydavidrosen.com. And like the crow himself, once you listen, you'll hope someone throws you out a window. Oh, man, that's <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Whatever. He, Jason. Score, he scores my movies. I obviously like his music. I know. Of <laughs> course. What is coming up in our next episode, Jason? It's time for our cult classic. And we're going to 1999. Jim Jarmusch, a very cool movie, one I like. Uh, it's called Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. So tune in next time for Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.